Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word with the people that are here and for each person that is here, I give you thanks and praise. And pray, Lord, that you will open our ears to hear what you want to say to us. Help me, Lord, in my weakness. I pray that you would give me a fresh unction of your Holy Spirit to proclaim what you want me to say. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. I want to revise my sermon title. This is the problem that I'm having because uh, we print the bulletins pretty early in the week and then I start working on the message and things change. So the title of my message is Jesus' Story Can't End in Death. Jesus' Story Can't End in Death. And that comes from uh, a line in the Apostle Peter's sermon. If you look there at Acts 2, in our bulletin, this is a sermon, this is the, we could say this is the very first sermon of the Christian church. This is the Apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He is, and the rest of the apostles have been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is about the Spirit of God descending upon these disciples who Jesus told to wait in Jerusalem. And pray for the Holy Spirit. And then they will be bold to be his witnesses. And that's what's happened. The Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, the disciples, in a very powerful way, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And Peter is going out in public now and explaining to them what is happening and who Jesus is. And he says at... Verse 23, excuse me, verse 24, God raised him up, that is Jesus, loosening the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Peter is saying in this sermon that if you understand who Jesus is, then you know that his story cannot end. In death. Now, in popular culture today, there are many stories that have kind of a resurrection theme. Um, there are characters of stories that we are familiar with, and there's a kind of resurrection that happens in the hero of this story. Uh, for example, the Harry Potter books. Now, to the disappointment of my youngest daughters, I've not read any of the Harry Potter books. But uh, I know that Harry Potter, the hero of that story, uh, at, at one point, at the, at the end, I presume, he dies. And then he comes back to life. And Harry Potter willingly faces death with a resurrection stone in his hand. Now, again, I haven't read the story, and I understand that it's not the resurrection stone that actually saves him. It's rather complicated. But he does come, does he, he does come back to life. And for those who have read the books and understand who Harry Potter is, it makes sense. The story would not make sense if Harry Potter died. And that's how it is with the story of Jesus. But this is not fiction. 
but history. It makes no sense of the story of Jesus if the end is death. So that's the claim that Peter makes about Jesus. And my prayer and hope for us today is that as we listen to what Peter says, as he makes his case that Jesus' story can't end in death, that our faith in the living Christ would be strengthened. That our faith that Jesus is alive would be strengthened today. So, if you have your bulletin in front of you, or uh, you, you, can, you can turn to this, or your Bible, and the bulletin, it's page 7, and we're getting an excerpt here from Peter's sermon. He's making the case that Jesus' story can't end in death, if you really know who Jesus is. And he starts with the miracles of Jesus. You see that in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. A man attested to you by God. The word attest means to give confirmation, to give evidence. What confirmation did God give that he was at work in Jesus in a unique and powerful way? Well... Peter spells it out here. These things, mighty works, wonders, signs. God did them in your midst, as some of you know. Some of them in this crowd witnessed the miracles of Jesus, heard about the miracles of Jesus. And what Peter is saying is that those things confirm who Jesus is, this Jesus of Nazareth. His healings, opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears, cleansing lepers so that their skin is whiter or as white as snow, helping people who have a speech impediment with his word, with his actions, loosen their tongues, raising people from the dead including Lazarus, who had been dead for four days in the tomb. And Jesus said, before he gets to the tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb to prove that he is the resurrection and the life. And Peter is saying to this crowd, you saw it. You have heard it. These miracles attest their evidence of who Jesus is, of God's mighty works. Now, it's interesting, we live in a time when many people dismiss the miracles of the Bible, dismiss the miracles of Jesus, dismiss the idea that resurrection can happen, that the resurrection of Jesus happened. But they are fascinated by aliens. Fascinated by aliens. Fascinated by ghost stories. And go to movies that are filled with the supernatural, with demons. And some of these same people who say, well, I don't believe that stuff in the Bible about Jesus. They do believe that the stars have power over their life. And so they practice astrology. 
Or they do say, you know what, I, I don't believe in the healing power of Jesus, those stories about Jesus' Jesus's healings. But these crystals here, you see, these crystals might bring healing to my life. But this stuff about Jesus, the resurrection, no, we're too scientific, we're too rational for that. And so we have this, in our culture today, I think this split personality when it comes to spirituality. There's a hunger for the transcendent, an openness to it, but not so much to Jesus. But Peter says, you can't dismiss the miracles of Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, the miracles are all throughout. And what are you going to do with it? Pascal says, uh, who was a great philosopher in the 1600s, if it were not for the miracles Disbelieving in Jesus would not be a sin. But the miracles are there. What do you do with the miracles of Jesus? So they are part of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. They show God's power at work in him. They show the life of God at work in him. That's what the healing miracles are about. Restoring life. That's what the, the, the resuscitation miracles are about. Giving life. The life of God pouring out of the power of God being demonstrated by Jesus of Nazareth, this man. Second, Peter mentions the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover in the Jewish calendar. They had these festivals where they would go to Jerusalem. They were Festivals where people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jews from all over the Roman Empire. And uh, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. That's what the word Pentecost means. Uh, 50 days. And so, um, this year, the year that Peter is preaching this Pentecost sermon, what happened 50 days prior? What happened during the Passover that year? That was when Jesus was crucified. That was when there was a sham trial in that very city that put Jesus to death. Fifty days before Peter preaches this sermon, Jesus had been crucified just outside the city of Jerusalem. So what do you think people were talking about in Jerusalem during this time? You know, after the assassination of JFK, President Kennedy, in Dallas, I bet if you went to Dallas 50 days after that, everybody was talking about what had just happened in that city. Trying to make some sense of it. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem. People are still talking about this miracle worker, Jesus of Nazareth, who'd been crucified. Trying to make sense of it. And Peter claims here in this sermon, that was not an accident, people, he says. It, it, the, 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 the cross was not a sign that God had abandoned Jesus. Rather, just the opposite. That the same God who was at work in the miracles of Jesus was at work in the cross of Jesus. Because there's something going on here, he says, in the cross of Christ. And that is a plan of God. 
Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan. This is something God has planned. And the foreknowledge of God. This is something God knew would happen before it happened because God planned it to happen. You see what he's saying here? This is not an accident that Jesus was crucified. It's hard to make sense of, he says. But it is according to the plan of God. Now, we don't probably have everything that Peter said on this day. Uh, we don't know all that he said. But perhaps he said, to try to explain the meaning of the cross of Christ, he could have said, I was just with Jesus 50 days ago. This man who was crucified during the Passover, we had a meal together. Me and the other apostles. We were celebrating the Passover meal just like you were. And here's what Jesus said. He knew he was going to die. And before he went to die at the Passover meal, he took the cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood. Which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus understood that his death on the cross would be the way that God has planned for us to be forgiven. He could have said, remember what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel. Isaiah 53. He prophesied that God is going to send a suffering servant who would die for the sins of the people. That the punishment that brought us peace would be upon him and that by his stripes we would be healed. The cross of Jesus is God's plan to cleanse sinners like us, like me. Peter doesn't pull any punches in this sermon. He's not buttering up his, his audience at all. He's not flattering them. Look at what he says. He says, you crucified him. You crucified him. You handed him over to lawless men. Some people in this crowd, presumably, some people in this crowd on the day of Pentecost were the same people who were shouting 50 days earlier, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. And Peter says, you are guilty of this. Guilty of the blood of history's most innocent man. But friends, if we understand why Jesus went to the cross, we are all guilty. He died for the sins of the whole world. We are all Christ killers. You know how we sing that hymn? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin. And Peter says to these people, you're the ones who crucified Jesus. You're guilty of that. This great crime. But he offers them forgiveness. He's going to speak to them about how they can be forgiven. How they can be pardoned. It's through the cross of Christ. And maybe somebody here today would say, if you really knew who I was, what I have done, I don't think God could forgive me. Peter saying to a crowd who was involved in crucifying Jesus, yet you can be forgiven. 
you can be cleansed. This is for you. This blood was shed for you. The ultimate cause of the cross, he makes it clear, though, is the will of God. Because it's the will of God out of his love, out of his mercy for the world, that he willed to save us from the penalty of sin, which is death and separation from God's presence forever. The cross is at the heart of the story of what God has done in Christ. It's something that God has planned in order to save us. But then Peter says the cross can't be the end of the story for Jesus. It just can't be the end of the story. God raised him up, verse 24, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That's such a bold statement. That's such a bold thing for Peter to say. Not possible for Jesus' body to stay in the tomb. Now, if I'm trying to get people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I'm not going to start with, well, it wasn't possible for his body to stay in the tomb. What I would start with, and I've done this before, is I want to see them, to, to make them see, or open their mind to see, the possibility of it. <laughs> it I, I want you to see, I would say, you know, open your mind to the possibility of the resurrection of Jesus. And I would try to make some rational arguments. You know, open your mind to the possibility of miracles. Open your mind, if you're open to the possibility of miracles, and I would try to give arguments for that, then open your mind to the possibility of the greatest miracle, the resurrection of Jesus. So, my, my pitch would be, here's why it's possible that he's not dead. Here's why it's probable that he's not dead. That's that kind of rational argumentation. And if you're interested in that, by the way, you can read C.S. Lewis on miracles. He's got a great book arguing rationally for the possibility. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, no, it's not possible that he's still dead in the tomb. And why does he say that? Well, look at what he says. He says, um, for, verse 25, why is it not possible, Peter, because of this? For David says concerning him. And then he quotes the psalm of David. He's saying to his fellow Jews, I want you to remember God's story here. I want you to remember what God has promised us. God has promised through our King David a king that would reign forever. And he says in quoting Psalm 16, he draws attention to this line. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter says, this can't only be about David, King David, because David died and his body is still in the tomb and we can go together and see the tomb. You know, basically he's saying, we know where it is. We can go and see the tomb of David and his body is there decomposing. But he says, that's not the case with Jesus. God has promised us a king who would reign forever, who would reign eternally. And God has given us a king. The Holy One who does not see corruption is Jesus. And he says, and I've seen him. We are witnesses. Now, 
just want to make a point here. How did Peter learn to read the Psalms this way? This is an interesting... What you see in the sermon in uh, Acts 2 is that Peter is quoting Old Testament passages all the way throughout. How did Peter learn to interpret the Bible this way? How did Peter, the blue-collar fisherman, get this wisdom to see these hints of the Messiah, these prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament? Well, Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that during Jesus' resurrection appearances, he held a master Bible class for his disciples. And he took his disciples and he taught them to see himself in the Old Testament. The prophets, the law, and he says specifically, Luke 24, the Psalms. And he showed them, the risen Christ showed them how it all fits together in him and how he is the key to the story. By the way, when you read the Old Testament and when you teach the Old Testament and when you're at your men's Bible study talking about the Old Testament or the women Bible study, coffee hour, what is it, on Tuesdays, or when you sit down in your home and you read the Old Testament, here's something you need to ask yourself. How does this connect to Jesus? Because Jesus is the center of it. How does it predict Jesus' work? How does it foreshadow Jesus' work? How does Jesus fulfill the things that are in the Old Testament? Jesus, as he appeared to his apostles after the resurrection, was walking them through Scripture to show that he was at the heart of the story of God's salvation from Genesis on. And so, that's how Peter learned to see it. And then the last line in our reading is, this Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all. Now, he's not talking about the crowd, he's talking about the disciples. We are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. It's obvious that after Jesus' death, the apostles, uh, they did believe that it was the end of the story for Jesus. That's why in the gospel reading, the door is locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They're afraid. It's the end of the story. It could be the end of the story for them as followers of Jesus. They might end up just like Jesus did, crucified, arrested, tried, and crucified possibly. So they locked themselves up for fear. What changed? Well, the risen Christ came to them. The risen Christ came to them, and he taught them through the Scriptures to see his story could not end in death. Now, you and I today are in the same position as Peter's audience. God has called us to trust the witnesses. God has given us the Spirit to stir up faith in our hearts, to trust the witnesses. Jesus makes a promise in the Gospel, doesn't He? The risen Christ says, Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. That's a beatitude for you and me. If you're a believer today, you're blessed. You haven't seen, but you believe the witnesses. You believe the testimony. And I wonder if you do believe that today. That Christ is alive. I wonder if you are still believing that today. That Christ is alive. Or maybe you find yourself in the position like the man who brought his sick son to Jesus and he said, Jesus said, 
if you have faith, if you have faith, this healing can happen. And he said, I do. I, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. That's an important prayer for us to keep in mind when we have a hard time. You see, believing faith in Jesus is not having all your questions completely answered. It doesn't mean that you don't have any questions and it doesn't mean that you have 100% mathematical certainty. It means that you trust in Jesus as best as you know how. And it's entirely appropriate to say, I believe, Lord, would you help me believe? Would you strengthen my faith in this? We need God to help us believe that Jesus is alive because the world has a very different story and it drums this story into us and it tells us that these resurrection stories are fairy tales and that this story of Jesus is a fairy tale. And so that when Jesus died, that's it. And so that when we die, that's it. And at best, Jesus was a religious teacher. And at best, your faith in Jesus is helping you limp along. And it's psychologically uplifting. But it's not reality. That's the story the world drums into us. And yet they tell resurrection stories. <laughs> they tell resurrection stories. They talk about heroes who sacrifice their life and come back because the story can't end with the hero's death. You see, that's pointing to something. That's pointing to a longing in our hearts that God put there. J.R. Tolkien, who knew something about stories, the writer of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, one of the greatest stories in modern times, you look at all time's best books list, he's up there. Tolkien was a Christian and he wrote to his son Christopher about fairy tales and the gospel. And I'll just end with this. But he says um, to his son Christopher, he said, you know, fairy tales speak to our deepest longings and the gospel is the greatest fairy tale. Not because it's false but because it's true. Because in the gospel, God, the supreme artist and author, he has told a true story that satisfies these deep longings that he's put there. And so that's why, friends, we must keep hearing this story. We must keep telling this story, the story that God has told us in Scripture. We've got to keep telling this, our sto this story to ourselves and to our children, and to our grandchildren, and to our friends. We need to broadcast this story to stir up these longings. These longings for miracles. The longing for divine forgiveness. The longing for resurrection. And find those longings satisfied in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you help us to do that, to believe this story, the greatest story of all, and to, by the work of the Spirit, um, continue to be strengthened in these stories and to tell these stories to other people, to stir up these longings for the life that you alone can give. 
I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and recite the words of our faith.